Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can consider us Car Talk because we focus on where the rubber meets the virtual road. And with me on this epic road trip down the information superhighway and all sorts of analogies and stuff from the 90s uh, is my co-host, Andy Leonard, who's everyone's favorite chief data engineer. Did I get that right? You did. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So what's new with you, Andy? Oh goodness, Frank! I have uh, I've been doing some edX courses. Very cool. Which ones? So I'm doing the HD Insight and Hadoop and uh, Big Data course. I'm enjoying it a great deal. Cool. So I think you've done this one already. Although I think you've done all of them, Frank. I'm not sure about that. Oh, but... I wish I could say that. I uh, <laughs> I um, I signed up for the uh, uh, Cosmos DB one, and I haven't had a chance to work on it because I've been Slammed with some very interesting work, um, actually. Cool. So, um, in fact, uh, hopefully soon I'll be able to talk about it. Uh, although I can talk about this at the end of the month, I'll be doing delivering training for Wintelect uh, and Microsoft on Azure Gov. Uh, and, nice. Yeah, going through kind of what's different about Azure Gov and things like that. And um, I'm basically at I'm, what I'm doing now actually is converting the labs that already exist for regular Azure and making sure they run on Azure Gov. And it's um, an interesting experience you mean it doesn't just work it does not just work uh azure gov for those you don't know um basically it's a lockdown version of azure for um public sector uh entities in the united states and um in order to comply with various um uh federal it and government it regulations certain features have to be turned off uh fed ramp is one of them there's a there's a ton of them and uh so it's interesting how some things are va- are there and not there, or some things are kind of there, but they have to be scripted. So that's been an interesting learning experience. So I'm I'm exercising quite a bit of self-control. I'm not making any NSA jokes. <laughs> Dude, they could probably read your mind at this point. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my data integration NSA joke is I, I need a uh, an SSIS connection manager for uh, for NSA data. The source and destination. <laughs> really, I just need the source. They've already got all the data I could possibly ever send them. <laughs> That's Sorry. funny. So uh, much for the sort self control. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes you know it's the holidays, right? Save self control for other things. <laughs> so true. So speaking of probing brains, um, I met uh, our current guest um, at a Microsoft offsite uh, where she had just started as a technology evangelist herself. Uh, and somehow we were talking about, I don't know how it came up, but it was left brain, right brain stuff. And she's like, oh no, that some of that's not true. And I'm like, oh really? And she's like, yeah. Cause when I would wire people's brains up and study how they, I forget exactly what it was. So we'll ask her. So I'm like, whoa. So wait, you study people's brains. <laughs> so, uh, I'd like to welcome Amanda Lang to the show. How are you doing, Amanda? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Uh, so Amanda Lang is a technology evangelist for Microsoft in the Philadelphia area. 
She's worked on projects at Michigan State, West Virginia, and Shell Games uh, Studios in Pittsburgh. She's a gamer, well-rounded developer, who's also interested in health, application development, design, mixed reality in VR, AI, and conversational frameworks, and IoT. Her website is at secondtruth.com, and she tweets at at uh, second underscore truth. So welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks a lot. So uh, the thing I got to ask is this brain thing. What 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 was that? My my memories of that are a bit hazy. Yeah, sure. So let me tell you about that that conversation. So uh, back one of the earliest projects that I did with uh, like hard science was I was at Michigan State University as as a grad student, and I originally started my academic career as a fine artist. I started out doing drawing, painting, and animation. So I learned two D animation and three D animation. And I fell in love with uh, programmable animations, like the idea of being able to write code and then art be generated from that. So it kind of took me on this path where I had done web development, I had done art, and how can I take like this code and art and kind of simultaneously make them something interesting? Uh, And I also have always had a big love of video games. So uh, I decided to pursue my grad work in digital media where I could study games um, both both from like a how do I develop games perspective and also from a like how do I learn about the psychology of games perspective. And so a lot of my career and sometimes hobbies have just been around trying to figure out how people interact with video games and how we can use that to make video games better, how we can use that to make people better. Like is there a way to take video games and improve people's health, improve people's attitudes toward life, uh, what what are the positive aspects of games and such for, so so on? So at Michigan State, yeah, at Michigan State, I was working with a group called the Mind Lab, and I got to do a lot of really fun experiments. And some of the experiments they did at the Mind Lab were they would attach people to they they did various types of brain scanning. I worked with the EEG, uh, which is the kind that you put on your head. It's like a cap, and there's like little suction cups, or at least there was at the time, and you kind of had to like gel people's heads up so that it would they would get a, a good read on their head and it worked better if they didn't have a lot of hair but you, <laughs> well wait and, a minute i i think i've seen this before isn't this in back to the future when marty knocks on the door <laughs> yeah is that yeah, the same I, thing better EEG devices now um we also the gsr which you may have heard of the galvanic skin response now you might have a bracelet that does that like a like a fitbit does that now but it was a bigger bigger deal back then to do a GSR, you'd have to like hook up a probe to somebody's wrist. And what that actually measures is the pores on your skin. Um, how open or closed are they? And it's a typical measure of like psychological arousal. Interesting. And, so that's how, that's yeah. how the um, Fitbit or the Apple watch knows when you're asleep. Yes. It, it's, it knows when you're asleep. It knows when you're sweating um, because it's your open, your open pores. Um, and I was really interested in using both of those uh, apparatus, both the GSR and the EEG, to determine how horror games scare people. <laughs> so ah, I did a little, I did a little homework project about scanning people's brains to see uh, whether or not they were scared under certain conditions uh, using using games. And and it was one of my very first like scientific papers, so I never like got it published. But it was literally my homework. Like my homework was to crunch this data about. These people are playing this game, and are they are they scared? Are they not scared? What parts are the scariest? Uh, that kind of thing. So that was just a fun project that I did for fun, and it taught me a lot about like how to determine when people are excited and how to determine when people's 
brains are activated in certain ways or another. And what I learned very quickly is that a lot of the studies about the brain scans, and they also did some of these at the mind lab uh, in regard to like violence, for example, when people are aroused about violence in the games, because you'd always see these studies like, oh, games make gamers more violent. And how can we measure that? So one of the studies they did, not at the mind lab at Michigan State, but at a German lab, was uh, measuring brain waves to see like what parts of your brain light up when you shoot a guy in a game and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah. So what, what they discovered there was the effect is very short term, like it lights up fast and fades typically. Um, but a lot of times when you read these sort of pop sci interpretations of brain studies, you've got to be very careful with how you interpret that result, because an activated brain section doesn't necessarily mean that there's a correlation or it does mean there's a correlation, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's a causation like it. You know what I mean? There's a whole correlation causation kind of aspect. It doesn't necessarily mean that like that is the same as stimulus. It just means that that part of the brain lit up and we have to figure out how to interpret that as scientists. So, you know. So it sounds like you were doing data science before it was called data science. A little bit. I mean, you get a lot of data from an EEG scan and you've got to just look at when the numbers go up, when the numbers go down. And what they were measuring things are like alpha brain waves, beta brain waves. And I could, I, I, I don't want to tell you the difference now because it's been so long since I did it, but there's different brain waves that mean different things. So, you know, you might have a brain wave that means you're sleeping and you may have a brain wave that means you're aroused. Aroused meaning a measurement of how excited you are in general, you know, not necessarily like aroused in the family, not a family show way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to go there. I, I, I... That's, that's, a, that's, a term, that's a term used for like engagement, like how, how excited are right. you? Um, and that's used a lot in, in brain science. Interesting. Um, so then you got into working at a game studio. Mm -hmm. uh, how much were you able to apply in an actual commercial product from that? Uh, I mean, is this something that's used a lot? Because one of the things I heard was, um, I don't remember if it was the people that make Candy Crush or kind of... Um, Farmville games, uh, although not the Farmville Andy's yeah. familiar with. So here's a fun fact, Amanda. Andy lives in Farmville. Oh, it lives in Farmville. Oh, okay, but not yeah. in the farm. But not the game. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess I can speak more broadly and more generally because this is another thing that I was very interested in researching. I worked on some free-to-play games um, during my time as a game developer. Um, and the free-to-play games are very interesting because they really do rely a lot on player psychology. And you almost were experimenting with a live data set of players as to like, you know, you don't want to call it experimenting because these are obviously like you're trying to figure out what right. works and what both excites people and what keeps them playing. But at the same time, like, how do you keep your business afloat? So if I speak like more generally about Farmville, for example, and Zynga, during their heyday, they were extremely data driven company. They would A-B test absolutely every aspect of every game design. Like, does a purple hat sell more than a blue hat? And wow. will they be tested? Some players a purple hat and some players a blue hat. And does one sell more than the other? And if so, we'll sell more of whatever hat. So you see that today uh, in games like the ones that Blizzard makes, for example. Like, I play a lot of Overwatch. Um, and that's a very data-driven. They take a lot of feedback. They look at what people are doing. And games generate so much data. There's so much information that you can crunch. And at the end of the day, you want to create a great play experience and you also want to figure out how to monetize your game. 
So there's kind of a, you know, you have to figure out how to make those two things work together. And a lot of companies that do either free to play or games as a service are really using that data to drive that. Interesting. So what exactly is games as a service? Uh, well, games as a service is kind of the idea that you maybe maybe we'll sell a game for a, a, a small price up front or you'll give away for free. Um, but then you're constantly updating that game and changing it and editing it so that the game itself is evolving uh-huh. as time goes on. So that people are and can you, people will stay engaged with the game for a longer time because there's some games where you just buy them, you play through them, you finish them, you're done. You got to wait for the next game to come out next year. Right. There's other games where they want that game to be your hobby. Um, and in that case, like that game, you're playing a lot more of, and it's got to it's got to continue to remain fresh for you. Right. I I read somewhere that um, one of the like um, they they employ psychologists to figure out addictive behavior. Sure. Uh, which explains why you know you play like Candy Crush and it's like you, you can't get it out of your mind. So clearly they've done that well. Yeah, I can't say for sure which companies have employed which psychologists. I know that Valve employed an economist. Interesting. To decide how to uh, do money on both their systems and their games, and just an actual economist, uh, because they needed somebody to figure out how to do currency, and they have a whole the whole system of currency in their various games. And I know that uh, Riot Games, that does League of Legends, rather famously employed a psychologist to figure out how to curb toxic player behavior, because of people being cruel to each other in chat, and how and they did all kinds of data. They had all kinds of data. My goodness, there's so much out there. If you have a word, if you have a sentence that says, "Hey, everybody, play nice," and it's in white, and you have the same sentence and it's in red, people are more likely to listen to it if it's in white or if it's in red. They they A B tested so many different things. Wow. Um, and I from that, that. I think that I think a talk that he's given out there is is out there. Um, by Dr. Light, um, and there's a talk that he's given that's about these little changes. I don't know if it's free out there, but really interesting stuff about the data that they've gotten from some of those games. Really interesting stuff. Uh, it's amazing how serious the games industry has become. Uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah, when you put bees on things, it tends to get serious. <laughs> and eSports now, too, hey, uh, it's getting huge, right? <laughs> and you gotta, you got to know like how to reach those audiences. We do it, Twitch broadcasting, and that's also huge. So our, our Mixer, if you want to broadcast through there, uh, live broadcasting games has also become a huge industry. So it's not just games, but it's the whole industries that have risen about that. And boy, there's a lot of data. Right, right. Interesting. So now I think the question is, um, now when I first met you, you had just finished a stint, uh-huh. or at least I believe you did, as yes. a games journalist. Uh-huh. So how did you go from working at a game studio to a journalist? Well, I've actually always been doing journalism on the side. Uh, I, and I, when I say games, we say game journalist, uh, I have a very easy games journalist kind of job. It's more of a laissez-faire kind of, I get to write about what I want to write about. And what that lets me do is basically go to game cons and interview cool game developers and write about their stuff. Um, and I even did some of that for Channel 9 on Microsoft when I had the opportunity. So that was really fun. Um, but I've done that for a number of years now, uh, and I still do it sometimes. So you'll still see me at a game convention with a media badge, interviewing people about their games or corresponding from the floor or whatever, because I, I really like doing it. It's really fun. I've been doing it for about uh, seven, eight years now, I think almost, uh, longer than I've been at Microsoft. And the website that I write for is called taprepeatedly.com, uh, tap-repeatedly uh, Good friends of mine uh, met up with the editor one time when he was guest lecturing in a class 
and I said, hey, I've got opinions about video games. What would it take to write about video games? And he just basically said, hey, write me an article. And if I like it, we'll publish it. And just kind of went from there. Oh, cool. That's very cool. Well, when you were mentioning Overwatch, I thought of my uh, 14-year-old son, Stevie Ray. We should uh, maybe have brought him in to, uh, to, to chat with you about that. He is That's a huge funny. gamer. That's one of his favorite games. Um, I know very little about it. He's just shared, you know, some of the storyline with it. And there seems to be an awful lot oh, of yeah, psychology going on Yeah, that always to me, too, like, the, how they design characters and what goes into the thought process there, like, what colors they choose and what's the, the important thing they talk about, uh, me having a fine art background, they talk about a character's silhouette and what does the character's silhouette say about the character? If you put the character without any color on a, on a white background, what what do you read from just their pose and just the way they're standing? And there's so much that goes into that. Uh, well, that is fascinating. Yeah. So I'm curious, you've got uh, a lot of background, sounds like a lot of different careers, different career paths yeah. here. And you find yourself now doing this this mm-hmm. this job. How does all of that play together? So I've always been, first of all, interested in teaching people things, uh, and that has always played into what I've liked to do. So when I was working with Shell Games, their, our biggest project was really a community website to teach people about game development. Um, and that was a short-lived project, but it was one that I felt really good about. I felt that it was a cool thing to do because I really want to teach people how to develop stuff. That's kind of always been my passion. And teaching anybody because to me you don't necessarily have to be a quote-unquote computer scientist to do computer science i wasn't a scientist until i was and i wasn't a data scientist until i was and i wasn't an engineer until i was so you know we don't want to have i want to help people not have imposter syndrome about these things that look really difficult so to me there's a straight line there from what i was doing then and what i'm doing now which is i'm working to help universities uh, set up their data science classes and data their courses and learning about what they're doing with data science and how Microsoft can help them with that. Interesting. So that's actually one of the things that um, uh, we were, I knew, when I saw you were doing, I was like, oh, we have to have you on the show because you were doing a data science bootcamp, I think at Stanford. Yeah, I went to Stanford a couple of weeks ago and it was my first like talk. I was really thrown in the deep end and just listening to people talk about their data science projects. Uh, they were doing one that stood out to me was earthquake detection or data to detect cancer and how you can early detect cancer in people. Things that really make a difference, I think, in people's lives and how they can use data analysis to to help save lives in in many cases. Um, That was just really interesting stuff. And I, I got to listen to them give some of those lectures, talking not just about how data can help people in ways like cancer, but also there were some lectures about the ethics of data collection. Like what does it mean to have to collect data? How do we can we keep people's privacy? These are all things I've had a lot of questions about, especially since I was doing internet of things and realizing that sometimes these can be intrusive. So we want all this information, but at the same time, how do we make sure this information is safe and in the right hands? Uh, really fascinating stuff to listen to. Um, and then from there, we went over to uh, Berkeley and we were talking about how to set up the, the practical side of things and what the students were actually learning in classes. And I, I found out about, their class data eight, where all the resources are available online. So if anybody's a beginner like I was, uh, data8.org, just with the, the number eight, all of Berkeley's, all Berkeley's material is open source. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Were we talking raw data sets or actual courseware? It's coursework. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, it's our textbook and their assignments. Um, right. So what you can do is set up a Jupyter Hub uh, with, with Python, and you basically deploy some of these assignments to it. Interesting thing here is that when you think about privacy protections and things like that, I mean, I would imagine that's a big problem for the game industry. Yeah, it isn't. It isn't. Sometimes it isn't because I think a lot of times you know voluntarily that your your activity is being tracked. When you when you you know submit data to a game, it's obvious that it's going to be on a server. Now, how long it's stored, that varies. I think from game to game. You know, sometimes they don't store the data. Other times they'll take it and make things like heat maps. Like, how often do players die on this map, and in what locations, and how can that help us make better maps in the future for our shooter? You know, that's all data that's stored. Um, so I think that there can be some. The biggest concerns I think are privacy for like minors and you know are they consented to have stuff tracked but I, games don't typically ask you for a lot of personal information when you're playing most of that's kind of voluntary oh okay um so it's not like they're munging the data with like credit card information or something like that yeah i was about to say like any free-to-play game where they store credit card information that's a different story right? okay uh, you want to make sure that information is kept safe and secure uh whether there's a if there's a payment process involved yeah that's that's definitely an issue. Yeah, especially <laughs> you want to keep your kids busy. You don't want to drop money on a game. You tend to, you as a parent, I, I hate to admit, but I, I have used the iPad to <laughs> buy me some time and some silence. Sometimes I have a blind spot to that because I am an adult gamer and I don't necessarily always think about the needs of privacy of children. But I, I know that that is really important for parents, especially to make sure that kids don't click on the wrong thing and accidentally spend a thousand dollars on Smurf berries or whatever the, <laughs> over the course. So that, that is, that is a real possibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, what's your advice for people that are interested in getting started in data science? You, you made some very interesting statements earlier about how you are, you weren't a data scientist until you became one. If someone's out there listening to this and they're thinking, I want to be a data scientist, what, what can that listener do? I think this data eight worksheet is so great. I it, it starts from the very beginning, assuming nothing. And that was really what I needed. Like, oh man, if you're a total, if you have no idea, this has computational inferential the foundations of data science. And you can start reading and learn like, what even is data science and why would I care? Um, another thing that I would suggest is to think about what kind of data sets are interesting to you. Like sometimes just staring at raw numbers is super boring. And sometimes the sample, like you can take a machine learning sample and run it and look at it and be like, yeah, but I don't care. Like maybe I personally don't care about like how you calculate a car price or something like that. Like, okay, that's not really what my hobby is. I'm not much of a car person. Um, but, but I really care about how you'd calculate a virtual car price. <laughs> I don't know why, but just all of a sudden, wow, now I'm interested. Like how do pe people are spending money on imaginary spaceships? Why? How? Oh, interesting. Like so, for some reason that just lights me up more. So then all of a sudden I'm, I'm hooked and I want to know more. So think about what problem, I guess, that would be fascinating to you to look at. Uh, and I really can't, I really can't recommend the Berkeley resources enough just because that was kind of how I got started understanding some of these very ground level processes. Oh, that's good to know. Well, definitely I put that in the show notes. So we've been kind of dancing around this, this question now is uh, how, how did you find your way into data? Did you find data or did data find you? 
Um, well, when I look back at a lot of the things I've done in my career, I think there's always been an aspect of data in a lot of the things that I've done, but maybe I just didn't call it that. I mean, like you said, like I was crunching information from EEG and I didn't really think of myself as a data scientist or even a scientist. I was just somebody who was really interested in horror games and I wanted to know how they worked from a psychological perspective. Um, most recently, it's definitely like a, hey, uh, we really would like for you to learn this stuff because this is the next thing, the next big thing. So partially like, a, oh, I got to learn some stuff I didn't know before. Uh, the funny thing is that a lot of this has been through almost learning it kind of backwards because I never really had to take a stats class when I was in art school. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was always really good at math, just kind of in general. So it wasn't like I had a hard time with the math part. So in college, I just kind of tested out of all the math that I needed to take. And I didn't kind of go back into it until it was like, now I need this again. Uh, so I hope I, I hope it didn't all fall out in the last. <laughs> I, I would say as someone who was in a similar <laughs> position, you probably spared yourself some misery, at least a semester of misery, sure. by not taking stats in college. Because um, most most of the time when it's required – it has no relevance to reality. Oh, sure. And I really care about the application of stuff. I mean, if there's any way to make it like more practical or interesting for me, even if you could just, I like to cook, just, I like to sew, like I like to, and all those things involve some kind of math and you know, you don't think about it until you, until you really think about it. True. Sewing is much harder than I thought it would be, by the way. That's true. Speak. Yeah. I didn't think it, Sewing? Hard, it would be as hard as it is. Interesting. What's really fascinating is, uh, I don't know if um, your Instagram is public or whatever, mm -hmm. but um, um, it, along sewing in AI, the you, you made a dress where you dressed up, I don't know if it was for convention or Halloween, uh, as GLaDOS. I did. I didn't make that one. That one I actually bought from... Oh, uh, really? Yeah, that one is one of my earlier costumes. I bought that one from, uh, I want to say I Love Fine. We Love Fine. Okay. They have a booth at most, at most of the PAXs, and I think I bought it from We Love Fine. Uh, I did make a Princess Peach dress, so that was oh, okay. <laughs> that yeah, that was cool. a more recent one. I do like the Glados dress, though it's super comfy. Oh yeah, and it was just cool because it was like, oh, you can dress up as Glados. And for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, um, there was a uh, series of two games, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, called Portal. Very interesting game from a game dynamic point of view. You had a gun, but it wasn't really so much for shooting. Uh, you basically created portals in in time, uh, not in time, in space, uh, and um, you can solve all kinds of puzzles in a different way if you created a wormhole, kind of. And um, the main antagonist of the game was an AI system called GLaDOS, and um, there's a whole whole bunch of like stuff around it. Like, uh, um, I love the end song in both the games, which is pretty cool. It was GLaDOS singing. Yeah, the end song is fantastic. GLaDOS sings the actual... I'm a big fan of GLaDOS. I, I love AIs in general. As somebody who studied AI for a really long time, um, and I really like Cortana, and I really like GLaDOS, I really like those characters. I, I wrote a book chapter recently about Shodan, who is one of the first evil AIs in a video game from System Shock, and she's a really cool... Oh, wow, that's really awesome. ...really cool character. Shodan's awesome. Oh, um, GLaDOS is awesome. So... I got a chance to meet the voice actress for GLaDOS and got her. Oh, really? Of GLaDOS. Yeah. Like I'm kind of a nerd for that character. So yeah. He's a trained opera singer. That's awesome things. He's a trained opera singer. So that's awesome things really? in the 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, what uh, what I was going to say was, uh, have you heard the uh, video games orchestra version of Still Alive? I, I don't. I don't know if I have. I don't think so. I will send you the link, and we'll put it in the show notes um, before we totally geek out on Portal. But <laughs> the original composer Jonathan Colton, I'm a big fan of his work as well. So he's done a lot. Oh, very cool. Um, yeah. So um, what's uh, what's really funny was I was um, watching Short Circuit the other mm-hmm. day with my boys, and um, I was like, you know, I gotta tell Andy. I had this like crazy idea. Um, and Eddie's probably sitting there like, oh, <laughs> like, we, I don't know how we can make it happen. We have to have like an AI film festival. Ooh, that'd be fun. That would be fun. Wouldn't that be fun? Because it would include Short Circuit, uh, the really bad sequel. We could maybe skip. <laughs> um, the Terminator movies. Um, and, you know, just obviously. Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey, obviously. And like just a ton because, I mean, it would be interesting because in Short Circuit, uh, and I also saw Chappie too the other oh, day. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah, cool, cool. Which was like now that I, I saw Chappie and then I saw Short Circuit again, I'm like, Chappie's kind of like the gangster version of Short Circuit of Number Five. <laughs> you know, uh, that's accurate. The new Blade Runner AI stuff in it too. I don't want to spoil it, but there's some interesting stuff in that. The new Blade Runner movie? Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so please don't spoil it. But, <laughs> but I mean, I think there's an interesting. I don't know. It's just it's just interesting how AI has existed in our culture for so long, and it's interesting you say that you you were probably you you were kind of dancing around and working with game AI for quite some time. Now you're actually in the middle of like, oh, you know, I could actually create my own Cortana. Yeah, Cortana. Just I just love her. Uh, I, I like the. I like the use of it, like practically, but I also just love that it's Cortana. It kind of makes me geek out a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We set up meetings and do all kinds of things. So. Cool. So, what is your favorite part of your current gig? Um, my favorite part of my current gig is, well, let me think about that for a second. I think probably what I like is that I'm always getting the opportunity to touch brand new technology. Uh, kind of even sometimes before it's cooked. So I really get the cutting edge stuff. And I, I like the pace of that. Like I like to try out new things. I like to learn new skills. I like when I can apply my own skills in surprising ways. And I think kind of being first in line for some of this stuff is what's really exciting about that. Cool. Cool. And um, yeah, that's sometimes when you get cut on the cutting edge, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, re- you learn the best lessons of all. <laughs> So that's interesting. Well, I'm working with like containers deployments now, and this all this technology is super new. This is stuff that maybe in some cases have only existed for a couple of weeks. And it's sort of like I never thought I'd be doing this, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's really cool. We have a series uh-huh. of complete this sentence. Um, there's one uh, when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Oh uh, well, I've talked about this a lot, but I enjoy costuming. I enjoy going to the gym. Uh, I did bench pressing today. I, I, I never thought I'd become workout freak, but funny thing, when I started tracking data, I discovered that it's really fun to watch those numbers go up. So I can relate. So you can brag. You can brag if you'd like. What are you up to? Well, I just bench pressed a hundred pounds today for the first time. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. Okay, no arm wrestling with the man. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't take bets on that. Or do, because you know the outcome. 
<laughs> I know who would win. I could say that right now. Uh, we have another one here. I think the coolest thing in technology today is blank. I think the coolest thing in technology today is uh, the pace that you can share uh, things with. Um, in particular, uh, the idea that you can sort of live broadcast even your coding and immediately get feedback on that is is very cool. Uh, communities that have people have built up around technology are all over the world yeah. now. And being able to instantly talk to people throughout the world and, and see what they're working on and what you're working on it can be intimidating because you oh, people are so amazing and so incredible but it also is great because you can see you can get inspired that's hmm. true i mean we we live in an age where you can learn anything anywhere as long as you have an internet connection right i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to just download a textbook at random and then quickly send my friend a link to that textbook and say hey check this out um, if we didn't have all the connectivity that we have today. So here's another complete the sentence. I look forward mm -hmm. to the day when I can use technology to blank. Well, I look forward to the day when I can use technology to make travel even easier than it is because <laughs> a lot of what I do involves going to different places. Yeah. And I would love to have that more automated. Uh, I think technology has helped me out in a lot of ways there because um, with being able to take podcasts on the go and books on the go and anything that I can do, I can kind of do on the go. Um, but I really look, I'm really looking forward to self-driving cars. Um, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, because I don't love city driving. Um, so that's an innovation that I can't wait for. That comes up a lot, doesn't it, Andy? It does. Yeah, we talk a lot about self-driving cars. And I I think the last time we talked about it, I mentioned the uh, Nerdist video on how to trap a self-driving car. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I've heard, I've seen one where they trap it in a ring of salt. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, maybe even better. It's like a slug, I guess. <laughs> The funniest thing about so. that is that that's like a mystical enchantment. Like you put a ring of salt around a demon, but I guess it also confuses a self-driving car. <laughs> Interesting. Now I'm going to have to look that up and add it to the show notes if there's a video. There you go. Or is there a demon in the self-driving car? It could be. It, it confuses this. It, can, it thinks it's a no-go line for some reason because it's like a thick white line and it won't drive past it. That's exactly what the Nerdist did. Yeah. So the the rules are, uh -huh. if there's a dash line on your side, you can cross. Right. If there's a solid line on your side, you cannot. So what they did is they just painted a big white solid line and then on the outside of that, a dash line. Right. And then they had the car drive into the circle, which it could do. There was a dash line on the outside. But then it's trapped. Oh, oh, goodness. Probably the same thing they did with the, the salt. salt. Yeah, they just made that pattern with the salt. Yep. There's no graffiti involved, so that's yep. that, that would save that's... you a little bit of jail time, potentially. It, it, it's also just really yeah. funny because of the whole like mystical idea of a ring of salt. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Over. I'd not considered that <laughs> dynamic. That's pretty cool. I, I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons, so that's another thing I, like, I enjoy doing when I'm not working. I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. So I'm going to skip just a little bit here, Frank, forgive me, but um, I, I finished listening to, I believe it may be the first non-technical audio book I'd listened to. Again, 
on the advice of my 14-year-old Stevie Ray. It's called Ready Player One. Have you heard of I that have read, book? I have read the book. I have not, I've, I've, heard, I've heard it better in audio form. I think it's Will Wheaton that narrates it. He does. He does a great job. There are things I like and things I don't like about Ready Player One. I don't know how much down the rabbit hole I should go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, they're making a movie. They are. And I'm curious to see how it will come out in movie form. I think some of the things they do with it won't be the same because of licensing or whatever reasons. Right. Um, so I'm curious to see what will retain and what won't retain. And if I'll like the movie as much, or, you know, in the same or have different quibbles with it. I don't know. I think there's some parts in the book where he writes something like, and the sound effect was made. That's the exact sound effect from Dungeons and Dragons and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and when you read that, it feels really awkward to read. Yeah. But in a movie, <laughs> that would be fine. Because it would just make that sound. Sure. You'd go, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's awkward to well, read again, that. Well, again, if they could get right. <laughs> so, like, that's one of the things I quibbled with about the book. That I also think it should have had more of the female perspective. But that's just my, my own biases. No, that's cool. Where was Rainbow Bright? I think... <laughs> Where was Joe and the Holograms? That was all my and 1980s childhood. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So we have one. Well, I'm sorry. Say that one more time. I, I ever it. wrote my own version. There you go. There you go. Well, you could beat Ready Player One by going to Player Zero. Oh. Yes. <laughs> of course, it's a little bit of a little bit of a disconnect, I guess. But still, <laughs> it could be a prequel. You're, I, I listen to mostly fiction when it comes to uh, podcasts and stuff lately. I think just because it gives me a little bit of a brain break. Um, I I really got hooked on the Adventure Zone which is a podcast where people are playing Dungeons and Dragons um, and they just, they go through their game. They just, you, they play Dungeons and Dragons. It's a radio play. It's the, the three brothers of the McElroy brothers. They're comedians. They, they do a lot of content on the internet and the podcast is fairly famous. Like I see people dressed up as the characters at conventions sometimes. Uh, and they're, oh, wow. It's the three brothers and their dad. Um, and they're funny. They're a hoot. Um, that, that has been going on for a few years and I got caught up listening to that. So I'm almost caught up to the current episode because I was going through the backlogs and I just download like four or five of them and listen to them when I'm on a flight or something. Um, and I'm trying to listen to more podcasts like about D&D. Like uh, there's a couple out there that are just like how to write a better game for your Dungeons and Dragons players and uh, GM tips and stuff like that. They're YouTube videos, but they'll, I'll just put them on repeat and listen to them in my background. Uh, and that's the stuff done by Geek and Sundry as well. So... That's the kind of stuff that I listen to for funsies. Um, stuff about games. Cool. <laughs> so do you have an audiobook you recommend? Uh, the, last, the last audiobook I downloaded, I swear, was just like all the old Dragonlance books from D&D. From when I, was, when I was a kid, I used to read those books religiously. And I was like, well, I really want to read them again, but I don't have time to sit down and read. So what if I grab... Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons books and listen to them in the car. So, oh, so they made audiobooks out of those. They, the Dragonlance books they have audiobooks for. Yeah, interesting. And those are some old time favorites of mine. Cool. Are they on Audible? Yeah. Cool. Well, we have a special deal with our four our listeners. Uh, Audible is a sponsor, 
And if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, they'll hook you up with a one free audiobook. Oh, cool. Well, if, you, if you're like me and yeah. you like fantasy, then uh, those, are, those are some of my favorites. So uh, they, they, are, they are on Amazon. And I, I just downloaded, I basically bought the ebook and they're like, hey, you can add Audible to this. And I was like, sure, why not? So. Oh, that's pretty cool. I love how the uh, Amazon does like the double deal mm-hmm. of like, you know, for one dollar more or two dollars more. Yeah, it was hard to resist because I because like I said, I whenever mm-hmm. I do have a commute, I like to have something to listen to. So uh, those are my go to. Some of the Neverwinter books are on those too. If you're if you're more of a Forgotten Realms fan, uh, some of the Forgotten Realms books are on there too. Cool. Very cool. So one other thing that we ask people is uh, share something different about yourself, but we do remind folks it's a family podcast. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'll tell you the, the one fun fact that I always tell people about me whenever they're curious is I, I also used to be really serious about singing music and I, I love to go to karaoke bars and blast out whatever song. Uh, I, I get a little too excited about singing karaoke with the gang. I, I once tried out for American Idol, but I did not get picked. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, and that's a whole story. You don't even get to meet the celebrity judges first. You, they just kind of like quickly run you past some no-name judges, and if they don't, and they, it seems like they just dismiss ninety percent of people offhand unless you're extremely good or extremely bad. Uh, then, that would explain um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they're extremely bad, they'll push you through. Uh, when I went, there was a mime. <laughs> they got picked. A singing mime. Well, he doesn't sing, oh. he just mimed, which definitely defeats the entire purpose of the whole thing. Uh, I guess now that I guess now the equivalent would be something like The Voice, right? You may try out for that. That did come to Philly once, but I didn't try out. <laughs> I had something else I had to do that night. <laughs> That's fun. No, it's just been a great conversation, man. It's been awesome having you on the show, uh, catching up with you and your yep. latest data adventures in Microsoft. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Um, Folks, I- once again, if they want to get in touch with you, you're at second underscore truth on Twitter. Yeah. And secondtruth.com. That's my blog. Yep. So what what's the origin of that phrase? I just curious. So there the long story short is that that's part of a song from the soundtrack in a video game. Uh one of my friends also really liked it, but uh the when I was a I don't know, teenager really, I registered that domain name because it just kind of sounded like a cool phrase to use for my portfolio for art at the time. And once you kind of have something like that, I started to get pretty decent SEO on it. So I just sort of held on to it. Uh, and I also kind of think of it as the idea of like, okay, if you're thinking about it like a second, a second, uh, sort of taking a second look at something, because that's sort of my philosophy where it comes to analyzing data and stuff. Like, not just what's your first impression, but let's look at what the second truth is and what we can learn from a deeper look at something we're engaging with. So I think it still kind of fits how I think about things. Cool. And with that, we will let the British lady end the show. Anything else to add, Andy? Nope. Great show. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen. Become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. Sign up today at datadriven.tv.